Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This episode is called When Systems Fail with Dr. Jennifer Kagan Viator. Jennifer is an advocate for domestic violence survivors and their children. She is also a palliative care doctor and a mother. In this episode, she shares a mother's perspective of child loss relating to domestic violence. In early 2020, Jennifer lost her daughter, Kira, who is believed to be killed by her father in an act of revenge. In this episode, Jennifer speaks about Kira and her legacy. She also talks about coercive control, love bombing, and explains how she is using Kira's story to create change in the legal system. This episode is part of our six-episode series called Understanding Femicide, which explores what happens when domestic violence becomes lethal. You may have heard about Jennifer's story in the news. You may have heard about Kira's law. And in this episode, we talk all about that. Jennifer explains what Kira's law is, how it came about, and she talks about why it's so important that judges get training on intimate partner violence and coercive control. Even though this is an incredibly tragic story and it is hard to hear, it's also really inspiring what Jennifer has been able to do and what kind of legacy she is creating for Kira. Uh, She's working hard to make sure that other mothers and parents and children don't have to go through the same thing that her family did. Now, before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence and abuse, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank Rogers for proudly sponsoring this series. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks so much for being here today. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to chat with you. Uh, We've admired your work for a while and we followed your story and we're just really looking forward to this conversation today. Thank you so much. So would you be able to start by just sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So my name is Jennifer Kagan Viator. I'm a mom to two children, a wife, a friend, a sister, a daughter, very much focused on domestic violence advocacy and trying to change the systems that failed my daughter and are failing women and children across the country. Thank you for sharing that. And I know you do have a really impactful story that we're going to get into a little bit today. I know it can be difficult to talk about, but I do really appreciate you being here. And I'm hoping you could start by sharing a little bit about your story with us. I know that domestic violence and femicide has impacted your life in some ways, and I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So I'll tell you the story of what brought me here and about my experiences. Essentially, in a past marriage, I was a victim of domestic violence. I met uh, the perpetrator when I was working my first job at a large downtown hospital, and he was very charming, very charismatic, 
went for lots of great dinners. It really was like a whirlwind. And of course, I was not aware of, um, you know, the love bombing phase of a domestic violence relationship. I um, obviously was very charmed by him and um, entered into a relationship with him. We got married and after getting married, it was really Jekyll and Hyde. So he was not the person that he had portrayed himself to be. The gloves came off and it was insidious at first, but became evident that I was being subjected to a number of types of domestic violence, which included in the short marriage, some isolated episodes of physical violence, and then notably coercive control, which I will tell you about. I found out that he was living basically double and triple lives, that he had even forged uh, his own academic credentials, that he was lying, cheating, stealing. I mean, the list goes on about all of the um, bad things he was doing. And so it was a very short marriage. And I had, by this point, when things got really, really bad, I had a a nine-month-old child. And while I was able to leave the relationship at that time, I then sought protection for our young daughter, Kira, via the family court and child protective system. And I can tell you more about that. Obviously, I'm not going to go through all the details, but essentially there were lots of red flags and warning signs. I was begging and pleading family court judges and child protection workers that Kira was in danger and our pleas were not heard and nobody listened and and helped. And ultimately, Kira was killed by her father at the age of four in February 2020. She was a victim of femicide. They were found at the base of a cliff uh, in Milton in a murder-suicide, and she was only four years old and had her whole life ahead of her. Domestic violence and femicide impacted us gravely, cost Kira her life, and has led us to advocate so that this does not happen to another child or family. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know it's difficult to talk about and it was quite recent too for you. So I'm sure it's still a bit fresh. I know you have spoken about it a lot and you're doing a lot of advocacy work, but I know that it never gets easier to relive this kind of trauma either. I wondered if there's anything else you wanted to share about Kira at all. Absolutely. I mean, thank you for asking. Kira was um, really just a bright-eyed, beautiful child. She was an animal lover she would rhyme, she would have poems, she would do art, she was really good at math. She would have done great things had she been given the opportunity. You know, I I have no doubt. Her favorite person in the world was her little brother. You know, she loved to make people happy. And for her light to have been taken out by such an evil, violent person, it's just beyond words. You know, a loving parent would never do anything to harm their own child, which is why it's so incomprehensible to the normal mind the way these perpetrators' minds work. Um, it's terrifying. It really is. It, it's it's terrifying. And I think, you know, all we can do from here is to talk about it, like you said, raise awareness about it, try and prevent it from happening. There was a few things you said there that really stuck out to me. One of the things you said was that there were red flags, that there was some love bombing in the beginning and that he wasn't exactly the person who he appeared to be. Wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how this played out. Yes, definitely. And this is such an important point for, you know, women to know about this type of relationship. And one of the reasons why we will do podcasts like this to raise awareness so that women in a relationship can say this doesn't feel quite right. You know, something is wrong here and extricate themselves before it's too late and they've 
committed to a person like this. So, you know, in domestic violence relationships, one of the key hallmarks is sort of a courtship phase, right? Where the perpetrator presents himself differently. A lot of these perpetrators are very skilled at charming people. They lie, they lie to women, they lie to a lot of people, they they manipulate. Um, so they appear very charming and friendly. Um, the person who you might think is a good neighbor, um, you know, may be in fact living a completely different life behind the scenes. So appearance is not equal reality. And um, that love bombing, you know, is very common, as you would know, in domestic violence relationships where the, the woman may be showered with affection and gifts and praise and the perpetrator may seem so lovely and agreeable. And, you know, in my case, wanting to meet all my family and friends and taking me to dinners and just very charming, really good at fooling people. And it's a very important thing for people to understand that a lot of times when that commitment is given, and in particular why domestic violence also gets worse after women have a pregnancy, right, is that when you've given that commitment, you're trapped in that situation. A lot of times that's when you're going to see those domestic violence behaviors manifest a lot more. I think that's really important to talk about. And again, difficult to talk about and for people to understand maybe, but that is um, an important piece is that when women do get pregnant and they're in these relationships, usually the violence does increase and escalate. So um, unfortunately, it sounds like that's something you experienced. And then after you had the child, um, I believe it got worse from there. Absolutely. And I think there's a myriad of reasons why that occurs. I mean, the commitment and the trapping would just be one factor as to why that occurs, but it's it's absolutely uh, correct. In my case too, there was a component of like this jealousy that my attention was being given elsewhere and that was not acceptable because the perpetrator wanted all my attention on him and to be doted on. And when a child was born, it resulted in worsening of that violence and those controlling behaviors for sure. Would you be willing to share a little bit about the controlling behaviors that you experienced? Absolutely. And I think it's so important because we talk about this concept of coercive control and, you know, it's complicated, right? So coercive control is really a pattern of harm or a pattern of behavior, most commonly by men towards women and can also involve children. It is basically a pattern of harm. So it can involve threats, intimidation, controlling the woman's everyday activities, you know, obsessiveness. Um, and it's a very dangerous form of behavior. Um, and it's actually associated with domestic homicide and femicide. For example, when there's a history of coercive control, violence, and a recent separation, a woman's risk of domestic homicide goes up over 900 times, according to the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention. In my case, um, what that looked like was day-to-day -day, um, having my activities and um, whereabouts controlled. So, you know, couldn't go here, couldn't go with this friend. And it was a very manipulative how that was exercised over me. Like, you know, after I was married, you know, oh, you have responsibilities here. You're so selfish. Why are you going with your friends? You know, you have a husband now, you have responsibilities. And so it was this guilting kind of at first that I really found myself in a very foreign situation. A lot of obsessiveness, wanting to know my passwords or insisting to know my passwords to my devices. This real um, kind of stalking behavior, actually a tracking device was even put on my car that I found out about after separation. Um, threats that if I didn't do as he demanded, that I would be punished. Threats that if I left towards the end of the relationship, that I would never see Kira again. She would be taken away from me and I would never see her again. So it's, it's terrifying. And actually, I use the term domestic terrorism because 
being intertwined with someone like this and having them exert that control over you. It's like being in a war zone. Um, you know, it, it's terrorizing. And that continued throughout all of the court proceedings. And ultimately, it continues because he had the ultimate revenge on me, which was, you know, filicide or um, taking Kira away from me, um, essentially forever. I'm so sorry that you went through this. And I think it's so important, though, how you point out that it's insidious, right? It's not like you signed up for this bad relationship. Nobody, nobody does. It builds, right? It starts with it's a great relationship in the beginning or so it looks and it slowly changes over time. And then by the end, all these horrible things have been happening. But that's not how it began. And it was not obvious to you. Um, And it's not obvious to any woman who's going through that. So I do want to point this out for our listeners that if you're experiencing this or if this sounds familiar, these are red flags, right? And they're worth considering and and seeking help because it's not your fault and it can start out slow. Absolutely. And I think that's so well said and so important to point out to listeners that you're absolutely right. Nobody signs up for this. I mean, somebody in the legal field said to me, well, well, you married him. And this was after all the post-separation abuse. And and I said, obviously, he. this was not the person that I married. This was somebody who's a master manipulator. I mean, we had a short marriage. It was only two and a half years. I was fortunate that I was able to leave the relationship at that time and had the resources to do so. But a lot of women are not able. And I think the point that people didn't sign up for this is so valid. And it's not something that a victim did that is their fault. It's that these perpetrators are charming. And once you're in that situation where they know they can control you, that's when things really start to escalate. Exactly. And I know for you, once you separated, things began escalating in different ways as well. I wonder if you want to share even a little bit more about this and and how it kind of led to the tragedy, of course, without sharing too many details, just as much as you're comfortable with. Sure. I mean, um, one thing that I think is important to point out to people is that abuse does not end at the time of separation, that the perpetrator is still going to try to maintain power and control. And in fact, when they're losing that control, when the victim has separated, it's the most dangerous time because they need to regain that control. So post-separation abuse is a very serious thing. And there's a lot of survivors across the country have reached out that are going through the same thing, that they're being failed by courts and child protective services, that this post-separation abuse, you know, it's, it's, it's very serious. So for me, what that looked like after I left was using Kira as a tool to harm me. So making demands, um, you know, obsessive emailing on the surface related to her care, but not all about trying to get claws into me. Medical decisions, because I was granted medical decision-making, you know, everything was was defied. So if the doctor said she needed this medication, it would be, no, she doesn't, I'm not going to give it. So the end result would be a child getting quite sick, um, you know, withholding her against a court order, constant lying, deceit, serving me with fraudulent documents, constant emotions. It was a living under this constant threat of, you do this, well, I'm going to withhold. You do this, I'm going to bring emotion. And when I say you do this, it's I'm leaving, I'm restarting my life, I'm working, I'm getting remarried, you know, all of the things that he wanted to continue to maintain that power over me. So, you know, that's really how it looked. And the, the litigation in the courts is a way for that perpetrator to continue to abuse. Um, and unfortunately, the end result was Kira suffering that he would harm her and 
he was harming her emotionally, psychologically, um, making false allegations against um, my my new husband. I, I it's certainly not exhaustive, Alyssa, and I could really talk about this for much longer than the podcast would entail. Thank you. That gives us a good idea of what some of the red flags were and, and how this followed you post-separation. Uh, as you said, the abuse unfortunately often does not end when a relationship ends. Things don't always improve right away. Now, I do want people listening to know there is support out there for you. Now, some women in these situations may not have the support right at the time for various reasons, but there is support out there. And I do want you to know that if you're listening, you can reach out to Women's Crisis Services. If you're in Waterloo Region, there are lots of helplines and we can get you the help that you need. That said, unfortunately for some people, the abuse continues and it can continue for a while. Um, Jennifer, could you speak to this? Absolutely. So, you know, this um, post-separation period, um, you know, is can be very difficult and abuse can get worse at the time of separation. And certainly the courts can be a forum to for that abuse to continue. Um, so while there may be excellent supports for women in terms of, you know, physical shelters and emotional support for them, and I agree, I strongly encourage women to reach out in that time. The issue becomes when they're having to deal with lawyers and the courts and child protective services who are not doing good in these situations. And it becomes something that many women have to deal with, sometimes for, for many, many years. And that's also where our advocacy is coming in, trying to look at, you know, how can we reform these systems who are failing women and children in situations of domestic violence? despite the very wonderful crisis services such as yours that are available to women in these situations. Because of course, you're providing that support to the woman, right? You're not the lawyer or, you know, the family court system that they then have to engage with. I totally agree. There's so much more work that needs to be done. And frankly, I don't know when the work is going to stop. Um, it's just such a prevalent issue in our society. But could you tell us a little bit about Kira's Law and the thought behind this? Absolutely. And, and thank you for asking. So um, Kira's law is contained within Bill C-233, which is um, a bill um, that was put forward by Liberal Member of Parliament Andrew Dillon um, in February of this past year. And along with very strong uh, support and advocacy from MP Pam Demoff and MP Yara Sachs, and the Kira's Law piece of Bill C-233 essentially raises the level of education on domestic violence and coercive control for federally appointed judges. So it's very important in terms of, you know, educating judges about these behavior patterns so that they can put child safety at the forefront. Bill C-233 is actually passed unanimously in the House of Commons in June of this past year, and it's now in the Senate. We have a phenomenal sponsor in the Senate, Senator Delphine and the bill is at second reading. Um, the other important piece of that bill that I'll just mention is around ankle monitoring devices in situations as part of bail conditions when there's a situation of intimate partner violence. So that's another important piece to the bill that will help is a step towards protecting women in situations of uh, femicide and domestic violence. And how do you think Kira's Law would have helped you had it been created back before all this happened? 
Absolutely. So I, I think had the judge on Kira's case had training in domestic violence, it would have made considerable difference for her. Um, we were before for our trial, a judge, Justice Gray in Milton, Ontario, who basically cut me off on the stand when I was talking about domestic violence and course of control and said pathological lying is not relevant to parenting. He's going to ignore it. He also said, one of you is good and one of you is bad. So what? So, you know, this is total and utter failure to put child safety at the forefront. And so I will hope that when judges are more educated on domestic violence and coercive control, that they are better able to protect women and children in situations of domestic violence. And it's really a step and a start, right? Um, of course, judges have to be willing to implement that education and to recognize that domestic violence is very relevant to parenting. And when there's a woman in danger, the child is also in danger. Yeah, exactly. And I'm wondering, as you've been working on this over the past few years, have you noticed a shift in the language or how this is talked about, how we talk about course of control? Are you seeing a change? I mean, I, I think that societally, you know, a number of things are are leading to change, right? Um, the media is really doing an excellent job, I would say, at covering these stories. I think there's a lot more coverage than um, there has been. Um, I think there's a lot of strong feminist voices and a lot of advocacy being done and a lot of great work in your sector. So that's phenomenal. You know, I hope that our advocacy on a national level has advanced the conversation. And um, certainly I will say that I have seen more conversations in the political arena among members of parliament and in the Senate around domestic violence and course of control. And, um, you know, we're proud of the work that uh, we've done. And, you know, we're so thankful for the wonderful members of parliament who have um, put this bill forward. So I do think that there is um, change and advancement of that conversation. And um, we are a little bit comforted that Kira's legacy will be one of child safety and protection for women and children. Of course, it's a step and a start and there's so much work to be done and we're in it for for the long haul in terms of what else needs to be done. And there's, as you said, you know, so well, there's so much more. And I do think it is such a wonderful legacy to leave for Kira. It's obviously a very, very tragic event, unimaginable but I think you've turned it into something um, really beautiful to help other people who are going through this, to inspire other survivors and, and to make sure there are other survivors. Thank you. I know it's it might seem a little obvious, but I wonder if you could share why this conversation is important to you. Absolutely. So, I mean, I don't think any woman grows up and thinks, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a survivor of violence, right? It's just not something that, you know, you think about. And I think that's maybe to do with a lot of myths and stereotypes and sort of misunderstandings of domestic violence and who it affects. But, you know, I am a survivor and I'm saddened to be representing survivors in this circumstance. But I will say survivors of violence are some of the most thoughtful, smart, engaged, really dedicated individuals that I've come across. And so it's important to me because, you know, we need to be doing more to raise awareness and we need to be breaking away that stigma because domestic violence, it really thrives in the shadows, right? If we're societally, it's a difficult conversation. If we're not having it, then perpetrators are able to get away with their violence and their abuse. But if, you know, if mainstream society acknowledges this and we reduce that taboo and we say, this is not acceptable behavior. I'm going to hold you to account. This hate and violence is not acceptable, whoever it's directed to. And in this case, you know, it's violence against women. We need to name it. We need to um, have that accountability. So, you know, that's why we speak out and 
so there is that personal connection in the sense that it's also what cost my daughter, who was my absolute best friend, you know, shining light in the world. It, it cost her her life. And that's not okay. I completely agree. And I think that was well said. And I, I think something we need to think about is it's violence against women and it's violence against children. The general public, I don't know if they always think about domestic violence as happening to children, but so often children are involved and they can be the victim. Um, and that's why I think your story is so important, even though it's difficult to share and talk about. The last thing I'd like to ask you today actually is, this is called the She Is Your Neighbor podcast. And we like to think about how we can all be better neighbors to those experiencing domestic violence, specifically to women and children. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. So I think um, one thing would be not shying away from talking about domestic violence, naming it, calling out hate and violence in all of its forms is so important. Standing with survivors of domestic violence. So when there's a story, you know, that's someone's coming forward and talking about domestic violence, showing support and obviously advocating for reform of these systems that are failing domestic violence victims and children, such as the family court and child protective services that just continuing to call for change. And I mean, we've had such phenomenal support from coast to coast um, around, you know, people who are just appalled at what happened to Kira. And I think there is a lot of public outrage about the femicide um, crisis in Ontario. And so I would say to continue that outrage, talk to your MPP and MP about these issues. And if you know someone experiencing it, um, be an ally to them. Thank you so much for being here today, Jennifer. It's just so wonderful to talk to you. And I, I just know everyone listening is going to be so inspired and you're going to bring a lot of hope to a lot of people. Thank you so much. And thank you for the work that you do each and every day. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, or Twitter and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.